Uh, let me see here. Share. There we go. All right. Can you, can you see that? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's on your screen. Yeah, so it's up. Uh, you want to get started? Shall we get started? Yeah, let's get started. So first of all, okay. a big hello to everyone. Uh, let me start by introducing myself. My name is uh, Rana Karachi. I am the regional industry director with uh, the manufacturing agribusiness and services team within the International Finance Corporation, and that's part of the World Bank Group. Uh, I, um, what is manufacturing agribusiness and services? It's what we call the real sector uh, and uh, covering all of Asia Pacific, which is 32 countries, uh, overseeing a staff of about 120 people in the current portfolio size, about 5 billion and annual investment size, about one and a half billion each year with the whole idea of trying to enhance economic development and promoting private sector development uh, in uh, all of these countries across Asia. We really focus on emerging Asia. And why do I bring this uh, introduction in? It's to give you a lens of where I'm, uh, the perspective that I am introducing um, for this talk. So we are part of the World Bank Group. And we, as part of this group, we really look at how can we help economies develop? And in doing that, we look at what are, what are the impediments to development? Uh, and from international finance IFC's perspective, we feel that developing the private sector is really part and parcel of this. Um, and uh, uh, and, uh, and so this is gonna be the focus of what I will be presenting. So that's a little bit of background on me. IFC itself has a global portfolio of about 50 billion. And I will talk a little bit about what we're doing specifically in the Middle East. So, uh, and, and as many of you know, politics of economic reform are front and center. Uh, so here is the outline of my, uh, uh, of my talk. Uh, you know, uh, I'll talk a little bit about the context. What are we seeing uh, in the Middle East at this point? Uh, a little bit about the regional challenges where we are seeing some potential opportunities and what our strategy uh, is in the region. Uh, and then a few examples of results. And uh, I won't go through every single slide. This will be available for people to see subsequently. What I will try to do is just highlight a few key points that may be of relevant to the context that I am trying to share uh, with the audience. Okay, so let me then go into the, give you a little bit about the context. Now, understandably, uh, I, I think, when I talk to people in, in Singapore and when they think of the Middle East, they often think of what we call the GCC countries, uh, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, which are the oil producing countries. And that has a lot of relevance in light of the economic trade and the oil and commodity trade that happens with Asia. But really, you can't take that in isolation because as you've seen over the past few years, over the past decades, what happens across the region impacts the entirety of the region and of course has a spillover effect into the economies, uh, the geopolitical contacts, uh, the political economies of the GCC countries as well. Uh, so you cannot really isolate them. So understanding it in totality really gives you a broader context as to what's happening in the region. So I think, you know, we'd be remiss to talking about so what's been happening there since 2010. And here's a handful of countries that have experienced 
elements of disruption, mostly driven by what we recall as the Arab Spring, right? We all remember uh, the produce producer who set himself on fire in Tunisia as a form of protest and rebellion that then sparked an outcry amongst the people and then really led to a spillover uh, and into um, the whole Arab Spring. And that was in 2010. Uh, and here you could see each country experienced it differently. Tunisia, then Egypt uh, started, um, Syria, uh, ongoing conflict, ongoing challenges, unresolved. Uh, Libya, of course, the state has not yet pulled itself back together again completely. Uh, Yemen, uh, one of the worst humanitarian disasters we are seeing globally. And now more recently, Lebanon through a series of financial challenges, the growing debt burden, the financial cliff that many had been talking about for some time, which I think, you know, they, they hit it. And then of course the explosion uh, at the port. So many, many, many uh, challenges across the region. Then you overlay it to which I will talk to about in COVID, right? Um, but there, these are some graphs here that give you a sense of really what this means in terms of just refugees. You can see here by country, look at uh, Jordan, um, and then you see post-Arab Spring, uh, all of the number of refugees that have gone up subsequently. Uh, and um, in fact, you know, you hear quotes of, of a Lebanon itself, which is a small country, one third of that population is made up of refugees. And here you see oil price, that's uh, basically the drop in oil price really due to COVID. So that's a little bit of the context. You know, we saw uh, 2019 started to materialize as somewhat of a transition year before COVID hit. We saw, you know, um, uh, some reconstruction in Iraq, uh, you know, some public services for refugees by the host communities, some macroeconomic stabilization, uh, and we started seeing some growth and some positive eek indicators. Um, of course, challenges continue to, uh, to remain. High unemployment continues to plague the region. Uh, fragility continues to plague the region. Uh, female, uh, youth and female population and, and unemployment rates remain high, particularly among women and the youth. Uh, so not while doing better, not out of the woods. And then of course you come in, COVID hit. Uh, and you can see here, it says, you know, MENA region, 1.8 million COVID-19 cases. Uh, Iran leading with the highest numbers, uh, but, uh, you know, an unprecedented shock that really hit them. Here is just a slide, because I think visually right now, given where we are globally, to see how COVID has hit globally. And there you will see uh, the MENA region. Um, and it talks about uh, the number of cases here, right? 1.8 million cases, Iran being the highest with 400,000. Uh, and here you can see the shadings, right? Saudi Arabia has the most, here is Iran. Um, you know, uh, now you're going into more into South Asia, but, um, but there are countries that have been hit harder, but I think the question is how will their healthcare services be able to manage this even if the absolute numbers are not as high as in other countries. So that's a little bit about the context. Let me go into uh, some of the challenges uh, that we see uh, across, uh, across the, the region. 
some of which many of you may already know, but I think it'll be good to re-articulate and maybe introduce some additional da data that many people may not be fully aware of. So uh, obviously high unemployment rate uh, is plaguing the region. Uh, not surprisingly, that has triggered some of what we had seen that led to the Arab Spring, right? Economic frustration, high unemployment rate. I think most of us are fully aware that that is a recipe for uh, potentially political and economic instability. And we saw this play out in the region there. Uh, and you can see the region, the countries with the highest unemployment rate here. This is, uh, um, uh, this, would, this is uh, Libya here in uh, Tunisia, uh, and this would be Sudan down here. Uh, and Egypt, you know, then is next. And not surprisingly, obviously, the Gulf countries, which have uh, obviously the commodities, natural gas and oil, but also smaller population base, uh, and therefore unemployment is much lower. But um, I think if you take a step back and think of the Singapore context, right, imagine if Singapore had more than 15% unemployment, right? But to be a real concern for governments. Water stress uh, is not new. And I think many people are aware because the region sits primarily across a major desert area. Uh, and here you can see the water stress index itself. Uh, and, you know, uh, poverty high. And here, which will kind of go into the overall theme of what we are trying to do, which is, uh, promoting the private sector. Uh, and, um, you know, large SOE presence becomes a challenge uh, for us to promote private sector because the more private sector from our view, the better economic activity, uh, more stable economic growth, uh, higher, higher employment rates. Uh, but uh, here you can see it's a hev heavily dominated by SOEs. And not surprisingly, you will see it heavier in the, um, commodity producing countries, you know, uh, here's, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, um, Iraq, you see high levels of, of SOE uh, in, in uh, engagements in those countries. And if you turn to the countries that don't have heavy natural resources, you see much lower, right? Here, Jordan, uh, um, Morocco, a little bit less, that's Lebanon as well. So you see those are become much lower shade. Uh, and that is often linked to whether or not they have natural, um, uh, natural resources in those countries. And then just, you know, continuing on the theme of the economic challenges, we can see here the data which shows uh, the uh, massive decline in GDP growth uh, and the limited fiscal space. Um, you know, these, the, the forecasts of, of the crisis are, are still fluid because it really is difficult to predict just how the global economy, national policies, and societies will react to pandemics. So this, what we are seeing where we, from where I sit uh, at the World Bank, at IFC, it's, it's fluid and things could change. Uh, but for as of now, this is really, you know, using World Bank data, this is what we see for the region. Um, so we, it looks like, you know, we expect uh, a basically a 4% decline in GDP in 2020 uh, compared to 2019. Let me share with you regional comparisons with that, right? So if MENA, 
you know, had actually a contraction, uh, you know, a negative growth in, of 0.2% in 2019 over 2018, it's a 4% uh, decline in growth over 2019. Uh, if I were to look at East Asia uh, in 2020, it's actually a half a percent of growth, but that's in comparison to almost 6% the prior year, but still a positive growth. And if we look globally, East Asia is the only region where we're expecting a slightly above zero growth. You know, uh, Central Asia, um, uh, you know, uh, Central Asia, negative 4.7% growth, so similar to the MENA region. Latin America, negative 7% growth in 2020. Uh, and then South Asia, uh, almost negative, about 2.7% um, contraction and Sub-Saharan Africa, 2.8%. So, um, so that just kind of gives you the, you know, sort of how things are looking and how we expect things to materialize in terms of, you know, GDP growth in 2020. And going back to, I think, what my original point uh, about uh, the Middle East and North Africa and the GCC countries, you know, clearly there is a disparity uh, in terms of economic development uh, GDP, you can see here uh, for sure. Uh, if you look at the GDP of um, the GCC countries, um, uh, here Saudi Arabia taking the lead much higher uh, than the non-GDP uh, countries here, which are very, very much more clustered down uh, at the bottom. Uh, in fact, I would say, you know, these absolute numbers probably are not the best comparator metric, you'd look at probably here GDP per capita is much better because in these countries, the GDP may be small, but that's primarily because, you know, it's a small population. And so therefore economic activity is relatively small to a country like Egypt, uh, which has, you know, what, 70, 80 million people or population. Uh, but if you look at GDP per capita, obviously that then gives you the extent of the wealth Right, and all of these GDP countries are way out here versus the non-GDP, which are clustered uh, much poorer. Uh, here at the the lowest, you see uh, uh, you see Jordan, and I'm wondering where is Egypt? Egypt should be quite low given the high population. In any case, but in terms of growth, um, it, outside of the Gulf countries, Egypt was had the most promise. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, largest population base. Two, they do have natural resources. Uh, three, they had really suffered economic decline as a result of the Arab Spring and therefore starting from such a low base resulting from that enabled them, you know, just with a few reforms to, to really move things uh, in a positive direction. Uh, and, you know, here we look at uh, the doing business rankings. <laughs> uh, the lower number is mm, the, you know, this means the worst you are in terms of doing business. Uh, here you see the best, the highest would be the UAE uh, and um, uh, the lowest ranking, not surprisingly, is Yemen. And actually I should have done my homework to find out where Singapore came out this year in the doing business ranking. I think last year, Carl, if I remember correctly, it was number two. Uh, but um, 
uh, but this year this one two it doesn't usually fall below two uh, so um, but that gives you the range uh, of um, you know of the region and and some of the things that come in there so what you see is some of the more common uh, bottlenecks would be resol resolving insolvency uh, it's actually for the region 27 percent which is lowest globally getting credit there'll be a slide that'll touch on that later very uh, challenging uh, protecting minority investors has been um, pointed out as an issue enforcing contracts right um, having said that there are some silver linings and mena is amongst the among three most improved regions since 2004 along with uh, eastern europe and central asia um, and the uae entered the top 20 in 2017 right in in, in top 20 now in 2017 it was number 26 now it's number 16 so you are seeing some positive reforms um, but just to give you a flavor of what it's like doing business, uh, you know, in the region. Uh, and for these next slides, I'll go through a little bit more quickly. It's just to, again, bring in more data, uh, which shows uh, the economic challenges, right? Um, international poverty, poverty rate, um, you know, uh, has increased over time. Uh, you see a stagnating um, uh, middle class. Um, okay, uh, thanks, Carl. You <laughs> you sent me the data. Thank you. Um, you see a stagnating uh, middle class uh, here, and uh, really has not an actually declining. You see in 2013. Uh, then 2015 and, and, and 2018 has really gone down. Um, and uh, on the, the flip here, you see most other regions, East Asia and Pacific, you can see 2018 is a huge jump in terms of the middle class, Latin America the same, and same thing for Eastern and Central Asia, um, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, big jump, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, slight decline. So it's unfortunate, unfortunate that they just have not been able to, um, boost the middle class. And I think a lot of this has probably been driven by the um, Arab Spring and the economic stand stagnation that has resulted uh, from this. Um, go to the next one. Uh, and here is just other data uh, to bring into the discussion, right? The economic Outcome is a result of how you invest and in, and in, and your people population, right? So here you're seeing, uh, you know, poor um, learning outcomes uh, in the Middle East, right? Uh, expected years of of school here nine and a half, but learning adjusted years of school at six, uh, which is only above Africa. If you look at again uh, East Asia, much higher. Uh, and uh, obviously expected years of school much higher. Unemployment rate, which is something that I touched on earlier here, brought in, uh, again, female unemployment much higher uh, than, um, uh, than, uh, um, uh, than the, the male, than the total unemployment rate uh, you can see here. Um, Actually, it's uh, interesting. This, I think this chart is really interesting. If you look here, oil exporters, right, which would be Saudi Arabia, UAE, which have much more 
uh, robust or healthier economies, GDP per uh, capita, actually have a higher female unemployment than the developing oil importers. Those would be countries like Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan. Uh, and I think you know, one would guess it's because you don't have the luxury of commodities, so you have to employ more of your population. Uh, nonetheless, you know, 23% unemployed between 15 and 24 is a lot, and 33% of women is still a lot uh, unemployment rate. So just, you know, I think is some interesting statistics here. Uh, and, uh, you know, it wouldn't be correct if I didn't mention something uh, related to um, climate change. It's very relevant. It's re very relevant for all of us in Asia. Uh, it's very relevant to MENA. It's relevant to the MENA region in a different way than it is uh, relevant for Asia. There, it's more of an issue about lack of water, uh, lack of those resources and therefore heat waves and its impact, its impact on the ability to grow food, uh, its impact on uh, the need for resources to cool um, homes. Um, so, and that, that I think is not insignificant. Uh, high surface water stress, which will only be exacerbated as a result of climate change. Uh, I think in Asia, you're seeing a different different dynamics uh, playing out, more typhoons, more, um, you know, uh, volatile storms uh, playing out here. But over there, it's really an issue of lack of uh, water, really, um, extremely scarce. Uh, and of course, uh, security and political risk. I think when people think of the region, this is something that does come to mind. You know, what are the security and political risks? So if I were to look at this, um, right, um, you know, uh, from very low, low, medium to high uh, to extreme. Uh, and so uh, there you see obviously Syria because it's in the midst of an ongoing uh, conflict, Yemen as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, you see it uh, lighter shade across uh, the rest of the region, but nonetheless, um, you know, uh, is something that is of, of, uh, of concern to many investors as they look to uh, potentially invest or deploy capital into the region. Not surprisingly, the political risk is much lower uh, in the oil exporting states uh, with Iraq on the side, parking Iraq aside, but, um, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia less, Kuwait, Qatar, UAE, Oman, uh, Jordan and, and Israel also low on that, as well as Morocco. Uh, and, and actually, you know, one would wonder, I'd have to look at the chart last year to see where Lebanon um, uh, came out, uh, because that's one country where you saw a lot of uh, things happening just this last, past year, um, uh, whereas countries like Syria had ongoing conflict, Iraq obviously had ongoing conflict. Uh, and so the, the challenges in, in Lebanon were really manifesting themselves this past year, both in the economic front, and then obviously with the um, explosion uh, in, in August. So, you know, here is, you know, sort of a risk a list of some of the, the risks that we see and, you know, how, how basically can you 
mitigate against them. None of this is, I think, of any surprise. Much of it is, is, is uh, um, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't say common sense, but many of us are aware of these mitigants, but they're still difficult to implement. Um, they're, you know, you don't see immediate results. It takes many years to put in place. Uh, and it's often changing some institutions uh, and behaviors that are in place. But, um, you know, you have to, you, what, we, what we advocate for is to, to obtain uh, macro stability, you need to support inclusive reforms uh, and agenda. Uh, MFD here, I see I put something in here that has a World Bank acronym, and that's just called Maximizing Finance for Development. And it's just our internal, you know, terminology to, to basically to advocate, um, it, you know, um, leveraging the financing that comes into each country to the best possible, uh, in the best possible and most efficient way. And what does that mean? Um, it means if a private capital is willing to invest in a company, in a sector, let private capital do it. Uh, and divert development financing to areas that doesn't attract uh, private capital. Not easy to raise commercial bank debt or, uh, or equity funding. So you really maximize the leverage that you could for every dollar development funds that you put into a country. So the whole idea again about advocating and developing the private sector in an inclusive manner uh, to leverage any donor uh, or development dollar that goes into uh, each of these countries. Uh, and so that is really the um, strategy by which we intervene uh, into those countries, right? Um, you know, so uh, security, obviously we need to work collectively across countries and the multilaterals. Um, Governance, as I mentioned in the slide on doing business, uh, is a concern. And so as such, you know, uh, working to help build transparency and accountability, um, promote regulations that affirm protect data privacy, um, you know, uh, portfolio consolidation, basically meaning to, um, uh, you know, uh, try to be inefficient in how you govern uh, and, uh, you know, I would say, you know, and what activities are under the state. And that goes a little bit back to what I had mentioned about SOEs and the size. The private sector can run it, let them do that, and therefore you free up capacity of the state to operate the industries that really need government intervention. And then move away from being an enabler, um, you know, uh, and promote legal reforms. Then if I were to, to go into um, this, you know, next section, right? It's not all, you know, doom and gloom. Those were the challenges. I laid out the context of what we are seeing in the region with uh, the Arab Spring, how that has filtered across the region, how that has impacted economies. But still these economies were struggling with some underlying challenges of youth unemployment, impact of climate, security concerns, and of course, uh, bringing in women into the labor force, 
know, these had always been underlying challenges. It's just the, the, the Arab Spring made, uh, a, you know, implementing economic reforms more challenging and more critical, actually. Uh, and then when you add COVID, well, you know, that just, you know, <laughs> introduced yet one very, another major challenge, because as we know, and people have been using this term, uh, you know, after COVID had spread is, you know, economic hibernation. So for a region that was struggling economically and then put them into hibernation, you know, uh, I can imagine, you can imagine, you know, it's not the best scenario and quite challenging. Having said that, there are opportunities uh, and there are, you know, um, areas of potential growth that we see. So uh, I think you have a couple of slides that give you some sense of what is happening that is, um, you know, sort of on the uh, on the positive side. And I'll I'll um, uh, turn more to the FDI slide here. You can see FDI is re was returning. We I don't have. We tried to dig up uh, data more recent than 2018. We don't have that. I think they're still gathering 2019. But suffice it to say, you see the trend. And as I mentioned before, Egypt was seeing a lot. Now, if some of you follow uh, Egypt and what's happening there, in fact, they did have had some natural gas fines um, uh, and some reserves, which has helped. Uh, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, large population base. And so uh, really more opportunity for growth than some other countries. You see the reverse happening to a country like Jordan, right? So uh, actually, just to share with the rest of you, that's where I am from. Uh, I was actually, I was born in Jordan. So it's not great for me to see that decline um, in FDI coming in. Uh, and I think there's a few dynamics uh, happening here. Um, and some of this is actually geopolitical. During the um, uh, invasion of Iraq, a lot of the UN and development work was done and anchored out of Jordan. And so that, you know, introduced some economic, um, uh, you know, uh, positive economic numbers because uh, a lot of, uh, you know, work and contractors and, you know, sort of Jordanian businesses were being contracted to service some of these reconstruction, some of this reconstruction work that was happening in Iraq. Somewhere around there, I think the dynamics shifted a bit, uh, and therefore, uh, they st was less used as a um, uh, as a base for the, uh, and therefore you saw a decline. In addition, uh, the civil war in Syria certainly impacted Jordan. What you saw is a host of refugees that came in uh, from from Syria as well, uh, and therefore also. Uh, you know, uh, causing a slight decline in in, uh, in FDI into the country. Um, I would imagine probably in FY20, Lebanon, you'll see even uh, a bigger drop. Uh, Tunisia and Morocco remaining relatively flat. We think here, the digital economy. And if you look at economic trends going forward, technology, the digital economy, I think it's one thing that we have seen at the bank as, way, as a way for economies to really leapfrog and jump start uh, economic activity. Uh, so, I mean, 
you don't have to go through the transition that most OECD markets went through. You see technology enabling people to really leapfrog stages of development and one of which is you know, the, the digital economy. Um, and, and something that is done quite well here in Asia is, is uh, um, uh, bank. You know, we, what we try to do is to you know, help the unbanked get banked and you do that through technology not physical bank branches and accounts, but through technology. And I think what is an interesting statistic here, you look at mobile subscribers, right? It is the highest per 100 inhabitants, right? Uh, and if you look at the East, it's, it's higher than East Asia, uh, but digital payments, you can see how low it is. Um, in comparison to you know uh, East Asia, and then of course you have you know Europe and Central Asia is very high, and Latin America very high, uh, which says that they're not really applying technology as the way they could as an economic enabler. So, if we were to look at it, we say, well, that presents an opportunity, an opportunity to invest, right? And here. It's another way of looking at it, right? Uh, technology to transform, and it's another way to employ the youth, right? Uh, so uh, just speaking personally, my son is much more adept at leveraging technology for his learning needs or for whatever needs he has versus myself. Front, you know, case in point, I can't get my camera to work. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know the technolo technologically challenged. And so, you know, given, there's a need to employ the youth, really. Um, this is one way that can present an opportunity to address um, the employment, unemployment challenges uh, that you have, right? Um, so uh, you can see the growth of startups, um, you know, 155 institutions listed in MENA, startups, uh, 30 from outside the, 30% from outside the region, FinTech, uh, has overtaken e-commerce as the most actively invested industry. So, you know, basically you need to work on these to correct this slide right here. And um, then, you know, those are the opportunities. So for IFC as part of the World Bank as an investor, really, what do we do? Each region we present uh, our strategy, our strategy in the region. How will we tackle the development challenges? How will we help support the private sector? Where are the gaps? Where are the opportunities? How can we intervene? Right? We do this annually. Um, so let me share with you a little bit about how we are looking um, to intervene uh, and, and to invest our capital into the region. Right? Right? So so, you know, looking at, um, you know, uh, productive, sustainable, you know, economic opportunities for men as 300 million job market entrants by 2050. It's not a small number. So you go from an old economy of pu public sector led jobs with limited citizen voice and inefficient service delivery to a new economy, right? That's driven by the private sector led growth, empowered youth and women, tech-enabled service and delivery and modern and efficient uh, utilities. And how do you do that, right? Um, develop investing in human capital, embracing digital transformation, and then 
giving room for the private sector to grow, right? Right, um, and that's what we call a blended, uh, a blended approach, right? Improving the skills and reskilling of youth and women. So one of the things we do is we invest in tertiary education, not necessarily doesn't have to be uh, universities, but it can be skill-based institutions, right? To help them to learn a skill that can make them product productive members of the economy. Uh, support entrepreneurships and SMEs. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, in improving the markets, right? And improving and in, in investing in disruptive technology. So that, that is the overarching um, objective, right? And, and so how do you achieve those? What do you do? Few things, right? Invest in education, as I meant before, like I said, pre-K through three. Modernize teaching practices, vocational training and tertiary education, right? Support private investment. Healthcare, healthcare is critical. That's another key pillar. And I even healthcare now bringing to the forefront as a result of COVID becomes even more important, right? Strengthening health systems through more private sector participation. Pursue universal health care coverage here across ASEAN. You have many countries that have adopted universal health coverage. Right? Refugees, you cannot ignore it. Uh, you need to address and support the refugee population. Uh, uh, and we have looked at some private sector solutions there as well. And technology, digital health. And of course, social protection. Right? Um, you know, uh, social insurance, flexible retirement saving schemes, um, you know, uh, again here, you know, managing the refugee crisis, right? It's basically investing in your human capital that helps to strengthen the enabling environment. And, you know, some, some um, aspirations, right? Uh, right? Uh, so, um, digital broadband access in the region, increasing the utilization of internet and mobile payments. I had mentioned this in a previous slide. Support the development of local platforms for e-commerce. Uh, ensure increasing digital connectivity is inclusive. Providing refugees uh, benefits to women, refugees um, and citizens of, of lagging regions and invest in telecom infrastructure. There's a desperate need to modernize uh, uh, regulations and utilities. If you don't have good roads, good infrastructure, good access to power, water, which is critical, and I showed this in an earlier slide, the dearth of water availability in the region means that how you manage your water resources has to be efficient. Uh, it has to use best available technology as much recycling as possible and um, uh, and how it becomes available to the population also uh, becomes very and how you do that becomes important. Power, very important as well. Uh, without good provision of services, industries won't operate and jobs won't materialize. And then of course, supporting entrepreneurship and digital skill development using technology to create opportunities for SMEs, uh, investment platforms, uh, and um, 
you know, uh, technology startups investing in funds as there you see Jordan, we've invested in a few of those. And then what I will do here is uh, then, you know, talk a little bit about, um, uh, yeah, results on the ground here. Right? So I want to touch on uh, the COVID facility. Uh, and this is a global initiative that was actually launched in Asia. As all of you are aware, COVID started in Asia. So here, uh, my team was the first to experience it. And through our conversation with senior management in Washington uh, and with the World Bank management, we really quickly realized that we needed to put in place a fast track facility that would support our clients with necessary funds, liquidity to help them get through this period. This is a global uh, program that we've put in place. Uh, it's an $8 billion program. Uh, we launched it in March of 2020 uh, to help our existing clients, uh, to help them with, like I mentioned, uh, global trade, liquidity, working capital solutions that is critically needed as a result of the impact of COVID, which has come in through demand destruction, supply chain disrupt disruption, um, and uh, uh, drop in commodity pricing. So as of August 31st, 2020, we provided uh, 1.4 billion of the 8 billion. It's a two to three year, it's a two year availability period for this facility. Uh, so across the globe, we've provided uh, short-term financing, not across the globe, I'm sorry, uh, Africa and the Middle East, uh, we've provided them. So, you know, it looks, uh, you know, uh, has the objective of helping to save jobs. Hopefully we are able to protect the most vulnerable. Uh, eventually, um, we would look to support the necessary restructuring of markets and resumption of private sector activity. I would say that is starting. And then in the long term, our intervention would be really how do you hope, how do you support resilience? If there's one thing that we've seen, what I've seen in our portfolio uh, materialize as a result of COVID is how resilient companies are, their operations, their balance sheet, the sector that they're in versus those that have less resilience. And those that were less had less resilience for a multitude of different reasons are really struggling. Others are able to pivot, adjust uh, their businesses to survive uh, in the current environment. Here's a few examples of some projects we've done. Uh, in Egypt with a commercial and CIB, one of the largest banks in Egypt, we provided a $100 million debt facility to CIB uh, and in exchange that money was deployed to help SMEs who have been impacted by COVID-19. Uh, in, uh, uh, in Tunisia, a $6 million senior loan to Bujibel. Uh, it's the largest date exporter in Tunisia and that is really for working capital support. And Jordan, Luminous Group, this is a um, a vocational technical training provider in Jordan, uh, where IFC is a, as a lender and a shareholder. Uh, and we have found that they had to, you'd see a decline in enrollment, but also an increase in the requirement for online learning. Uh, so um, uh, 
uh, you know, IFC gave them $9 million to support the liquidity pressures they were facing. So there's a few examples of some of the interventions that we had uh, in the region. And here are just a few stories uh, on the ground of, of, uh, uh, of uh, what we've done. Um, uh, you know, affordable health care in Jordan. IFC uh, has worked there to provide um, uh, support for modernization, multi-specialty hospitals in Jordan to provide high quality health care. We have supported renewable energy capacity in Egypt. Many of these interventions were pre-COVID, but still quite important. Uh, health and nutrition services in Yemen, partnering with UNICEF to support 14.6 um, million people uh, for health and nutrition services, and 5.3 million uh, of children were vaccinated uh, against preventable diseases. Uh, infrastructure investments in Morocco here uh, of all weather uh, rural roads, uh, increasing access from 54% to 80%. Uh, so, and um, a cash transfer uh, program in, in Egypt's largest, um, uh, you know, HCB, uh, 22.7, um, uh, you know, uh, million house 2.26 million households households 88 percent of which are women and of course the refugees uh, IFC supported some of the developers and, and uh, that were providing housing uh, for um, for refugees as well so those are some some of the, the projects that we've done then uh, I will uh, conclude with just a snapshot of our portfolio um, you can see total committed portfolio uh, in MENA, that's a spell, that's not mean, it's MENA, should be M-E-N-A, 4.2 billion. Uh, and there you can see largest exposure, not surprising much in Saudi Arabia, um, you know, in the Emirates, because we only invest in poorer countries and for there, the need is not so great. Uh, and therefore IFC's role uh, is, we don't really have a role to help um, uh, invest in, in these countries like Kuwait and the UAE and Saudi Arabia. What we will do is work with them if they want to invest in countries like Iraq, Syria, Jordan, we will support them. Uh, but there you can see again, the largest being Egypt, second largest being Jordan, uh, and followed by Lebanon subsequently. And just to give you a benchmark, you know, that committed portfolio exposure in the entire region, 4.2 billion. If I were to look at just our sector in Asia is alone is about 5 billion. So if I were to add the total industries, banking, infrastructure, and mass in Asia, I think the portfolio there is, um, uh, oh, I have to tell you, but I think it's somewhere close to 17 uh, billion. So just in terms of order of magnitude, the difference. And then if I were to look at the countries where we had the largest exposure, just to give you a, a sense of which sectors uh, we have exposure. Uh, in Egypt, you see it's pretty well distributed amongst the industries. Uh, mass, the blue, is the industry that I cover for Asia, but you can see financial institutions, uh, and infrastructure pretty well evenly distributed. Then if you go in, into Jordan, 
you see infrastructure um, being the bulk of the portfolio. And there we've invested in the airport in Jordan, in water uh, plants, in um, um, uh, yeah, the um, uh, uh, renewable energy. Uh, we invested, in, have a big portfolio in renewable uh, in, in the country. Uh, and then uh, not so much in the financial sector, but in the mass sector that I cover, and that's where I'd mentioned uh, medical. We've invested in the pharmaceutical company there, uh, in tertiary vocational training, in uh, fertilizer production, phosphate mining. And then in Morocco, you see it's you know 50% financial institutions, 36% uh, in uh, mass, um, and very small in infrastructure. And then if you go to Lebanon, it's pretty much all dominated by financial institutions that are investments in our footprint. And it's, you know, kind of a reflection of the economies themselves in a way. So that just gives you in just four countries what our footprint looks like. I think I've now hit the hour and I think I need to allow time for question and answer. So the rest is really just um, for your future reference. There you can see actual, the actual data on uh, GDP, unemployment, things like that. So uh, with that, I will um, finish and I guess I will stop sharing and then hopefully uh, see if the camera is willing to work. Uh, mm, nope, still not working. Let's select another camera. So I apologize everyone, you're not, uh, you're not missing much by not seeing me on screen. Let me just put it this way, but uh, <laughs> at least I'll be able to answer some questions. So let me pause there uh, and turn it over to Carl and team to see if anybody wants to ask any questions. Okay, Th thanks Rana. Uh, that was uh, quite, quite uh, detailed and uh, gives us a lot of food for thought. Uh, we'll now take questions from the audience. We have a bit of time so we can have a few questions. Uh, preferably, uh, raise your hand and we can unmute you and take a look at you so you can identify yourself and, and use your video and ask the question. But if you're feeling a bit shy, then just uh, use the chat function, send in your questions and uh, I'll, I'll read them out to, to Rana so she can tackle them. So uh, while, while, you're, uh, while we're waiting for questions from the audience, Rana, I just wanted to ask you this, this slide that you had and, and you mentioned this figure more than once. Uh, 300 million jobs by 2015. Uh, you, you did, did share a little bit about uh, how you are going to, or, or the plans that you have to get there, or how, how the region is going to get there. But, you know, I mean, th these demographic issues, particularly youth unemployment and women, have been around for quite a while, and uh, you know, very little seems to have changed. So what do you see as the roadblocks to, you know, to tackling this problem? You know, I think those roadblocks will be the same as what we've seen. Um, and I, I think we were seeing, you know, Carl, I have to say some progress um, before the Arab Spring. I used to cover the MENA region for many years, for 10 years. Uh, and I moved to Asia just after the Arab Spring. Uh, and I covered the petrochemical industry, which is, I would say, a very male-dominated industry, um, commodity-based. But um, uh, but I was seeing, and I, I worked on a few privatization transactions, so very slow, two step forward, one step back. 
incremental growth there and you were starting to see some positive reforms take place, investing in education. So we were seeing some progress there. But then when the Arab Spring hit, there was a retraction uh, and the political in instability kind of, you know, became the political issue be sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, became front and center and, and really overtook and impacted the, the economies. Um, and so those challenges, uh, they just went back a few steps there. Um, since then, we have been seeing some, again, positive growth. As I mentioned, Egypt, we were seeing some. Uh, we were seeing some positive growth in Jordan as well. Uh, and um, the obstacles will continue to be the doing business the business enabling an environment, and then the risk perception. The other, what I would say too, and I would just add to that, we're seeing shifts in trade patterns. We're seeing shifts in global institutions and the footprints that they have, uh, the regional development banks. We're seeing a lot of capital that wants to enter markets with a view of getting higher returns, increasingly so, much more so than it was 10 years ago. So these dynamics themselves, what I'm seeing come out, is more trade patterns with the region themselves. So Asia, which did not have as much trade with the, with the non-Gulf countries of the Middle East, we're seeing increasingly than, than, I, than I was maybe 15, 20 years ago. So those dynamics themselves, should translate into economic opportunities as well. Would they be as fast as we would like? Probably not. Uh, but I think you will see uh, some as a result of shifting, shifting trade patterns. Uh, um, the US may be trading less with the region, Asia trading more. Okay, th thanks for that. Um, we have a question now from a colleague of mine, uh, Tilak. Uh, Tilak, you raise your hand. Uh, please go ahead and ask your question. Um, uh, firstly, thank you, Rana, for an excellent um, overview of the social and economic conditions in the region. Uh, my question is related to uh, to Aramco's uh, privatization, uh, the IPO, um, that was seen as a, as a big, big event uh, in the Middle East for, for a number of reasons. Um, was there a position that uh, the World Bank and, and IFC might have taken with respect to uh, the view on, 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 on this IPO? Because um, on the one hand, you saw a situation where um, uh, we got capital from the private sector going into the public sector in a way, uh, almost opposed to the idea of promoting privatization and pr promoting the private sector. Uh, and related to that question, does the World Bank and the IFC have a view on, on oil demand um, uh, and potential for resources uh, so that you in fact discourage um, uh, 
uh, you know, a dependence on oil as such because uh, you might have the view that the demand outlook uh, for oil like BP seems to have um, recently that demand will, will in fact, uh, has already peaked. So I'm not sure how, how far this is related to, to the work that you're actually doing, but maybe you could share some of your views on this. Thank mm. you. Well, I, I guess I would start if I knew the outlook for oil, maybe I'd be in a different job, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think, let me come at it from a different angle. You know, um, we work with a lot of countries that um, uh, do have natural resources and in general, I think it's, it's, uh, when, you ha when you're endowed with natural resources, it creates an economic enabling environment for sure. Um, but the other thing that we're seeing, and, and maybe you've sort of alluded to this, is you know, with the downturn of oil prices, uh, which was precipitated, I mean, they had been low for a while, then precipitated by, uh, by COVID, which was you know, basically supply chain disruption and demand disruption. What became more apparent uh, is the need for economic resilience in a country. So if you're dependent on one key source of revenue, your economic resilience is definitely um, um, challenged. And I think uh, that's a very important element. Uh, so how does that translate into outlook for oil prices? Um, you know, I, I can't tell you what the outlook is. I would tend to agree that we probably would not see the prices that we've seen in the past, because if you look at what were those drivers, those drivers was really uh, the growth of Asia and predominantly China. China as a massive commodity consumer uh, was really driving commodity prices up in many respects. The shift of the Chinese economy from the manufacturing to the consumption base is gonna shift basically its demand for commodities. And that'll have a knock-on effect to all kinds of commodities, including oil. So if I were to take an outlook for that, I would say that is going to be um, on the demand side, one major impact. Now, obviously if there's supply disruptions, that'll impact prices as well. So there's different things that come into play, but that's one key element of that. And so I would tend to have a slightly more, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say called muted, but not so bullish outlook on, on oil prices. But where, what it would look like, you know, that's very, very difficult to tell because that's also impacted by geopolitical events as we've seen many times over. So it's not just pure economic supply demand driven, it's geopolitical. And those are just impossible to predict. Um, in turning turning to the IPO, you know, I mean, it was done for many reasons, and and I think opening up your capital base to private investors is generally a good thing. I think what you want to make sure uh, that you have is um, um, what you want to make sure that you have is is you know minority protection, right? So if you're going to be investing, you want to make sure that you have the opportunity for minority investors for their interest to be protected. Uh, and I think that's the other side of the element that you want to make sure is in place when you do, uh, but when you're listing, you do have sort of public disclosure, public requirements that sort of help support that. So I'm not sure if I answered your question exactly as you wanted it, but that just sort of gave you the context in terms of how we would 
look at the impact of oil of oil and its prices and and what that requirement and what we've observed uh, over the years and the requirements to enhance economic resilience. And you're seeing a lot of the countries in the Gulf really look at economic, if you look at the Emirates, for example, um, they've really diversified their economy, created a very strong service economy, um, uh, banking, finance, consulting, uh, trade uh, to help enhance uh, I mean, I keep going back to this word resilience, but it's 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 critical. Thank you. Uh, you did answer most of the question. Thank you. Thanks, Rana. I just uh, you just mentioned the Emirates. I just wanted to check with you on that slide that you had about the high SOE presence, and it seemed uh, unusually high in the Emirates. That's that's accurate, right? Uh, let me go back to that uh, slide. Um, it would be, I want to get the number exactly, the shading for, for, for that one, but um, um, it should be, yeah, it should be uh, definitely accurate. Yeah, here it is, um, SOE presence, and you see in the Emirates, yes, um, it's, it's quite, uh, yeah, it's quite uh, high, uh, and I, I think um, I would have to dig into um, uh, the exact calculation and how they do that, but it's proportion of GDP accounted for by SOEs. The, again, you go into you know a lot of state owned of the of the commodity businesses. So, in absolute numbers, may be different, but as this is a proportionate number. All right, thanks, thanks. I was just wondering what what sectors they were in because, uh, like you said, the UAE has done quite a good job about uh, transformation, and, and yet. You know, it's high, and that's a proportionate number. If you, I'm sure if you took absolute numbers, it would probably look very different. All right. So we have a question from the, from the audience. Uh, so you mentioned the opportunities uh, uh, that are available in, in the region. Uh, what would you say are the, uh, are the areas that Asian companies, like East Asian companies can capitalize on? I would go straight into technology. I mean, if you look at how Asia has embraced uh, fintech, uh, digital payments, e-banking, technology, uh, and it's really at the forefront of so much innovation in this area. And this is, we're seeing, I'm seeing it in, in the work and the investments that we do. Many things that we do in Asia are used to set in terms of standards, landmarks, um, uh, showcase of what other reason, regions can then follow. A lot of this would be in technology. So if you look at the gap, you, you look at the number of mobile users in the Middle East, but yet digital payments, very underrepresented. So there, I would say, is very much a low-hanging fruit. The other thing in uh, we're seeing in Asia is having to do with um, uh, the green economy. That we're also seeing Asia lead the way. Uh, and uh, I think there continues to be a lot of opportunity there. The other thing that Asia and Singapore in particular is very good at is managing water resources. Even though it's in the middle of the, it's near the, it's an island in the ocean, it has different challenges with respect to water than the Middle East does. Uh, but it's leveraged technology recycling to help um, uh, water security, safety, um, and uh, um, the, the recycling, I mean, it's known for desalination and recycling. So I, and that's a big need uh, in the region. 
So I think that's another area that if you, if I were to identify a sector, I would also say water resources and, and uh, desalination would be an opportunity there. All right, thanks. Uh, one more question. Uh, did, uh, you, you touched a little bit on the, the, the impact of COVID, but overall, uh, you know, how has the, you know, the, the COVID-19 affected all these uh, grand plans? You know? It seems like every other country has a vision 20 something or other. Uh, how, how, do, how has that affected all these plans? And then do you see that being pushed back or is that gonna be a renewed impetus at some point? Because a lot of these plans are based on things that you know, uh, might have existed pre-COVID, but uh, may not come back for a few years at least. Uh, at least. You know? Air travel is one, for example. Um, yeah, air tra yeah. travel, yeah. tourism. So you, you so That's a right. lot of, so I mean it's affecting everything really all of these plans. So tourism really hard hit uh, as a result of COVID. We're seeing this in Asia as well. In a lot of countries in Asia are very dependent on tourism. The Pacific, Maldives, um, Thailand, the bulk of the GDP is based on tourism. Uh, so uh, I think um, it's affecting, it's going to, and, and the Middle East was part of it. A lot of them were trying to promote tourism. Now Jordan was, uh, I think Egypt was trying to develop its tourism uh, industry, but um, that industry has really taken a hit uh, and taken a pause. Uh, so I, I think if you ask me, all of these plans and economic plans, wherever globally, you have to take kind of take a step back. And I think COVID is gonna necessitate almost uh, a relook uh, at economic plans, um, industry focus, supply chain, and almost mandate uh, a new uh, forward look. Many say, okay, you know, COVID will, you need another year, we'll be back to normal. But I, I, if you ask me personally, I mean, this is not the position of the institution, but I think it's not gonna be that quick to rebound. I remember when, when it, the pandemic first hit and most conferences and people that you would talk to said, well, we, we just expect, you know, it's gonna be like a hockey stick uh, and it's gonna rebound quickly. But now it's, I think it's gonna be much more long drawn out uh, and, um, and this may create different structural shifts in terms of trade, in terms of uh, consumer behavior. You're gonna be moving faster to digital payments than you did in the past. Um, I think um, uh, tourism is really going to be impacted. I think it's really before we get back to where we were in 2019, it's gonna be another few years, uh, 2022 at least. And then what it'll look like may not be the same as it, the way it looked in the past. So I, I think it's going to need uh, a new strategic look. Having said that, the importance of the business enabling environment, the importance of investing in human capital, healthcare, education, I think that will remain, if not become even more important. But there's a slight difference there, isn't there? You know, from a country that used to rely on tourism, say Egypt or whatever, and something like Saudi Arabia, you know, which has built its future plans on you know, you know, ramping up tourism. Where does Saudi Arabia go from there, you think? Uh, the, I, um, 
That's a good question. I'm not sure I have the answer for you, Carl, but uh, where do they go from there? They wanted to build up tourism. I think it's going to be a longer game. It'll take longer to build it up, for sure. Um, certain aspects of the tourism industry, we might see rebound more uh, than, than, than others. So, for example, we're seeing tourism corridors start to develop. Uh, you're seeing in China domestic tourism increase, Thailand domestic tourism increase, international tourism less so. So what you could end up seeing there in, the, in, in Saudi Arabia would be more uh, regional uh, tourism uh, that they would start to, uh, to build up. And when you go to more regional tourism, it takes a different shape than it does global tourism. They tend to be more um, lower cost, uh, for middle-class, you know, uh, tourists as well. So you have to reshape it to some extent. Um, so uh, over the next couple of years, these are some of the shifts that we are seeing. We're seeing tourism corridors materialize in the Pacific, for example, potentially, you know, between the Pacific and New Zealand and, well, at some point, Australia. But now that's, that's see, that's taken a pause. So once planning, there was at one point planning uh, you know, sort of a regional Pacific tourism, and now Australia has taken a pause because of the surge there. Uh, so it's really going to be hard to see how that's going to materialize. My, my guess is it's going to be a longer game. All right, great, thanks. I don't see any other questions, but I'm going to throw you a curveball. And uh, okay. since you know, you're, we're going to re remove ourselves from the Middle East for a minute, and I'm sure many people have this question on the list, but probably too afraid to ask. What's your outlook for Singapore? Oh, ha. Oh, that's a good one. I wasn't prepared for that. But uh, um, outlook for Singapore. I have always been very bullish on Singapore. The resilience um, and uh, the ability to really effectively govern and um, you know, uh, be strategic. I think uh, I've always been incredibly impressed at, at, at how the country manages. Um, yeah, I would, I'm quite positive uh, on the outlook for Singapore. I think um, we're seeing some rebound in, um, in supply chains uh, already uh happening um and so the whole uh, transshipment anchor that that singapore plays i think will continue to be um uh will continue to play a role and i think the digital economy the move towards digitalization globally will work also in singapore's favor because they've also been very good at that uh, both in education digital health things like that um so, I, I mean, uh, from my view, outlook, better than, than most countries, just put it this way. <laughs> All right, so business as usual in 2021, then you, you heard it here first. Well, I have a question now from an ex-colleague, uh, Abdullah Babud, uh, who's now in Japan. Uh, Abdullah, go ahead and uh, turn on your video and ask your question, please. Um, thank you, Carl. Thank you, Rana. That was very, very illuminating. I really enjoyed it. Um, um, I'm actually in, not in Japan, currently in Muscat. Uh, but uh, yes, I joined the Japanese University uh, in Tokyo. Um, 
Uh, one of the things that you mentioned was education and uh, attainment in education. And maybe that is one sector that probably East Asia, Singapore can help uh, the Middle East. But that's not my question, um, uh, among others, of course. But um, um, I think while you, you were doing this, it just occurred to me that um, you, you uh, aptly explained, you know, the, 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 the reasons for the non-development, if that's the right word for, uh, or the lack of development in the Middle East, and you mentioned the Arab Spring, etc., etc. But I think there is a fundamental underlying principle uh, or cause, and that is um, the governance structure. And you, you briefly talked about it. And uh, uh, also the lack of proper accountable institutions. Um, and also free media, uh, and of course education, uh, etc. All of this have led to, uh, and of course, uh, 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 last and not least, corruption. All of this has led to uh, the Arab Spring and the lack of development. And if this is not tackled, we're going to go back to square one. Um, would you have anything to say on that? I would agree. Perhaps. I mean, I think governance is important. I mean, I, I showed, and you can see it in, in um, uh, the doing business rankings, right? Um, it goes down into governance. And, you know, Abdullah, I would say, this is something that we see, not just in the Middle East, but uh, across the globe. Uh, and it's, I think, some lessons in governance. Uh, many countries can take lessons in governance from Singapore, for sure. So yes, mm -hmm. that's very much part of that. But um, and and those 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 conversations certainly do take place. Uh, I'm sure, as you know, from the World Bank and IMF into the region. But from where we sit, it does. It, we certainly don't meet. Doesn't mean we stop and don't engage, right? We keep trying to push, and our engagements with our investee companies come with a governance review, actually. Uh, these are one of the things that we've more recently added as part of our review with companies. We don't just come in and say, okay, can we work with them and can we not? We actually look at their corporate governance structures and come up with recommendations on protecting minority shareholders, on uh, accounting procedures, on disclosure policies. So we come and try and tackle it with the companies that we engage in. Are we 100% successful every time? No, but uh, I can tell you it's definitely a discussion and something that we push on, on all. Do we get to where we want all the time? No. Do we have challenges? Yes, and get pushback from companies? Yes, but that has become part and parcel of the engagement that we undertake. So it's not just providing capital and money, but it's actually engaging environmental review and corporate governance as well. Right. Um, what about corruption? And well, corruption we cannot. I mean, if if we have any, uh, I mean, that's that's one of our policies. So any any company that signs up, it's um, that's uh, in the agreement. It's uh, you know um, uh, they undertake that there isn't going to be money laundering and and corruption. And if we find out, then it's for us as an event of default, and we accelerate the loan and. We believe so. It's it's pretty black and white for us. If if that's something that we do find out that we have the right then to exit the investment. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rana. Thank you, Thank Pal. You. Thanks, Abdullah.
Uh, sorry about the geographical mistake. Didn't realize <laughs> you were still in musket. <laughs> well, Rana, I'm afraid we'll have to let you go now as time is almost up. Uh, so th thank you very much uh, for, for taking the time and putting your slides together and, and a very, very uh, illuminating conversation full of facts and figures. Uh, thanks everyone else who joined us and uh, we'll see you or we'll, yeah, we'll see you virtually next week when we talk about the, the future of oil. Thank you again.